All right, well, good morning. Yeah, so uh, flying solo today. I've got a, a wife and three daughters, but they are off doing other things. My wife is having a little girls weekend with some college friends, and my girls are with their grandparents, so it's unfortunate because people always think better of me when they see them, so <laughs> you just get, uh, get the worst, but um, yeah, like Rick said, I've been the pastor at Faith Evangelical Free Church over in Metamora for about eight years. Um, I preached here once. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Joe and I did a pulpit swap years ago. Um, but uh, it's good to be back here. Um, I have had a, a job change, a career change lately, last three months, and I'll talk about that more today as I kind of share some of the stuff that's been on my heart through this transition. But uh, I'm honored to be able to preach uh, today and share with you. So I'll just pray for a moment here, and then we'll look at God's Word together. Uh, Father, I do thank you so much for your love for us. Um, I thank you for your grace. Uh, it's the only reason that any of us exist, any reason, the reason any of us have breath this morning, uh, why any of us are here, and it's your grace that has bought us and saved us and sustains us and will see us through to the end. So I pray for more of your grace right now, that as we humble ourselves before you, you will be true to your word and give grace to the humble. We know you oppose the proud. We don't want to be opposed by you. We want to be uh, on your side. We want to be the recipients of your grace. So we just humble ourselves before you this morning ask that your word would shine, that your spirit would be active, and you would get all the glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm just going to look at a few verses there today. 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, as you turn there, I just want you to imagine a scene uh, this morning. So you're in a hospital room, labor and delivery, and the mom's been laboring for nine hours and the doctor says, finally, all right, this is it. And she pushes one more time, and out comes this beautiful, healthy, screaming baby boy. Okay. The nurse takes the boy and, and, and goes to hand the child to his parents, and the parents say, uh, no thanks, we're done. We're done. I mean, we, we, we did our part, right? Uh, you know, the child is, 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 is alive and, and healthy and here, and, and we really we feel like uh, our work is over and uh, that they can figure it out on their own. Uh, now, I don't, I don't know what would happen if somebody tried to do that. Can you arrest them if they do that? I don't know if that's like, against the law or whatever, but uh, no one would do that. No one would do that because it's crazy. You know, everyone recognizes when a new life begins that that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning. Right? That child now needs someone to take care of him, and as he, as he grows, teach him how to live. And the same thing is true of the Christian life. You know, it starts with this miraculous new birth where somebody tells you the good news about Jesus and you hear that good news and your life has changed. You, 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 you know, someone shares with you this, this truth that, that, that even though we have done wrong, even though we deserve to be punished for our sins, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life in our place and he died on the cross in our place and then rose victorious from the dead to guarantee us eternal life and then offers us the Holy Spirit of God himself to live in us and give us new life and power for living. Right? When you heard that good news and you believed that was a miracle, that was a new birth. But just like with the birth of a child, it was the beginning of the story, not the end of the story. And like a little baby, in that moment, you could really use some help from somebody who's a little farther along to show you, now, now what? How do you live the Christian life? What's next? Okay, now that's, that's the reason why 1 Thessalonians is in your Bible. 
See, Paul was a missionary. Paul was a church planner, and he went to this town in Greece called Thessalonica, and he was there for a short time, maybe as short as three or four weeks, and he shared the gospel with people, and the Spirit of God was working, and they believed, and their lives were changed. There were new births all over the place. And then Paul got run out of town. He couldn't stick around. He had to leave. And so he wasn't there to help these new babies get started in the Christian life, to begin to grow in the Christian life. So he wrote this letter of 1 Thessalonians, especially chapter 4, to say to these folks, all right, now that you are alive, now that you're these babes in Christ, these little babies, now you've been saved by God, now that you love God, here's how you live the Christian life. Here's how you please the God who loves you. And so we're going to look at a couple verses in chapter 4 because I think we all need this as much as the Thessalonians. Whether, maybe for you, you are a new baby in Christ. Maybe it's only been a couple weeks for you. Or maybe like me, you've been a Christian for more than 30 years. Hey, but we still need this. We still need this reminder from God. How do we live the Christian life? What kind of life is pleasing to God? So I'm going to read verse 1 of chapter 4. And then jump down to verses 11 and 12, and we're going to look at these and just see what kind of life is pleasing to God. So chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, verse 1. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. Okay, so you hear him him saying this, you know, I I, I led you to Christ, I gave you some basic instruction, now I'm urging you, just as you heard that from us, uh, to continue to walk in it, to continue to please God, just keep doing this stuff, keep doing what you're doing. This is a life that pleases God. And then the next few verses he gives some other stuff that we can't go over today, don't have time, but I'm going to jump down to verse 11 and 12 and key in on these instructions. He says, here's the life that's pleasing to God. Verse 11, to aspire to live quietly, And to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right, what kind of life pleases God? How do you live this Christian life? The kind of life that pleases God is an ordinary life. God is just looking for people to live ordinary lives. If I, could, if I could summarize this verse in one sentence, and really this whole message in one sentence, it's this. An ordinary life pleases God and produces extraordinary results. An ordinary life pleases God and produces extraordinary results. So using that as our guide, and you've got this in your outline as well, uh, in the bulletin, let's just walk through these verses together. So first, an ordinary life pleases God. That's what verse 11 is saying. It gives us this description of an ordinary life, and we see three things that Paul gives us that God really likes in this verse. And the first one is living quietly. See that in verse 11? He says, aspire to live quietly. Now, what's that mean? Does that mean uh, I should turn off this microphone and just start whispering to you? Right, like, you know, don't, don't be loud. I'm really, I was a little hopeful that this was finally the verse that justified that, that uh, bookish introverts are more godly than those weird extroverts that like to talk to people. Okay, but I, don't, I did some study. I don't think that's what it's saying. Okay, it's not talking about uh, you know, the volume of your life or how much you may talk. God is looking for people whose lives are quiet. That is, folks who have an internal peace, a calm inside that then generates and creates an outward life of quietness, of, of calm, of order, a well-running life. Okay, so as I was thinking of this, I thought about two cars that I've had. 
the first one was a Ford Focus, which is a fine car. We had it for a long time. It saw us past 100,000 miles. Uh, but, but, but about the time that we were ready to get rid of it, um, it was the sort of car that let you know that it was on, right? So, so you, you, know, you start the car, and it sounds like a bomb going off. Okay, and, and then you're sitting there, you're just like, yeah, this car is definitely on. If you, were, if you, were, uh, if you had the courage and you, you walked around the front and you opened up the hood, you could see the engine shaking like, like a wild animal just trying to break free and, and get, get back home, you know? And, and so it was, a, it was a noisy car. It worked, but there was something wrong with it, some things that were not quite working right that then created all of this noise, all this dysfunction. You knew what was, that, I was, that I was running. Okay, the car we got to replace that, also a good car, we got a Toyota Camry, um, a newer car. And it was funny, like I turned the car on, and I'm going, is this thing even running? Like I can't, it's not shaking like I'm used to. Like, uh, is that a feature now? Is that what cars do? Uh, you know, if you now go around, open up the hood, and you can see it's running, the belts are moving, but man, it's quiet. Why? Because things are working right, because internally the things are balanced. Everything is, is, you know, the internal function of the motor is, is right, and so it's running quietly. And our lives can be like that. You know, some people's lives, they're, they're like my old Ford Focus. There's, there's something just off, something wrong. It's not totally broken, but it's just not right. And, that, and that, that, that dysfunction creates then a messy, noisy, chaotic life. And I'm not a mechanic. I couldn't diagnose a car, but I've got some experience with the Word of God and diagnosing souls. And I'll tell you the problem, the problem that creates that messy, disordered, chaotic life is a lack of connection to Jesus. If you don't have a deep, life-giving connection to Jesus, then your life is going to be out of order, and it's going to create all this dysfunction. You're going to be looking for other things to provide satisfaction in your life. You're going to chase after career success, or always chasing after that, that relationship and trying to make uh, romantic relationships or friendships fill a void that they're never designed to fill. You're going to pursue entertainment and never be satisfied. You're going to look for more and more stuff, and you're going to get in debt, and you're never going to have the satisfaction you thought you were going to have. Because right, you're chasing after these things that only Jesus can provide. And, and that disorder, that internal discord, creates a noisy, chaotic, messy, broken life. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you keep Jesus in the center of your life, if you make knowing him your number one priority, he will calm your life. He will fix your engine. Okay, he will bring that inward sense of peace, that inward calm, that contentment, and your whole life then will quiet down. So if you want this quiet life that, that, that God us, urges us to aspire after, what you need to do is you need to come to Jesus and you need to ask Him to bring His peace in your life. He is a great mechanic. He can take the noisiest, most anxious, stressed out life and have it purring like a kitten. So that's the first thing. Come to Jesus for a quiet life. That's the kind of life that pleases God. As we keep going, we see there's, there's more. He says, aspire to live a quiet life and to mind your own affairs. Mind your own affairs. Some translations say, mind your own business. Okay, And so this, this minding your own affairs, minding your own business, pleases God. Uh, now, it's a little bit of an unfortunate English translation that, that we have there. Um, so I'm sure you know. Uh, that the New Testament is written in Greek, and so what we have here are translations of that, and they're, they're very good, and that gets the sense of it, but, but one of the, the unfortunate things is that when we hear that phrase, mind your own business, we, we just kind of skip the literal meaning of it, and we jump right to the idiomatic meaning of it. Okay? So there's some phrases like that. For example, this, this week, 
I was, uh, I was slicing some cheese to get ready for my lunch. You know, I was getting, packing my lunch for the day, and I was using a, a butcher's knife and this big block of cheddar, and, and I, was just, I just said to my wife, as I, was, uh, as I was doing this, I said, man, I'm really struggling to cut the cheese this morning. And of course, I meant it literally, but my wife and I both went back to junior high immediately, and we're like, oh, cutting the cheese, right? Because right, you can't hear that phrase and take it literally. You go to the idiomatic meaning. And the same thing with mind your own business. Uh, it has a meaning. But as soon as we hear it, we think, oh, keep your nose out of my business. You know, stop gossiping. Uh, don't be a busybody. Mind your own business. And there's some sense of that here. But, but, but first, we should understand, what is the literal meaning of this? In fact, in the Greek, it just says, do your own things. Do your own things. As in, we have things to do. We have responsibilities that God has given us. We have our things that we need to do, and we should do them. Uh, there's a new word that captures that idea pretty well, I think. It's called adulting. You heard that word? Um, adulting, at the Oxford Dictionary defines it as the practice of behaving in a way characteristic of a responsible adult, especially the accomplishment of mundane but necessary tasks. Adulting. Uh, it was a word invented by millennials, for millennials to describe that transition out of delayed adolescence to finally begin to take responsibility for yourself and to start to do the things that normal adults do. So they'd say things like, I washed my sheets today, hashtag adulting. Right. I, I scheduled my own dentist appointment. Right. I'm adulting. Okay, so to adult is to do those mundane, ordinary things that you just do, that, that it's your things that you're supposed to do. It's minding your own business, doing your own things. Being an adult, taking care of responsibilities. Okay, so, so here's the crazy thing. According to this verse we're studying today, uh, these things aren't just mundane but necessary tasks. They are actually pleasing to God. It's not just necessary evils that you have to get done to get on with the business of doing real stuff that pleases God. God is pleased when you mind your own affairs, when you do your things, when you adult. That is pleasing to God. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I wonder if you've ever, you know, gone to the dentist for your annual teeth cleaning or semi-annual if you're ambitious and, and, and thought, boy, I bet God was really pleased that I did that. You're thinking that God loves the fact that you got your teeth cleaned? But of course he would, right? Because he made you, he gave you your teeth, you're taking care of his gift. Like, he likes that. That's a good job. Good job. God is pleased. And I'm not getting any kickbacks from Dennis for this one. I'm just, I'm just sharing with you the word. God is pleased when you clean your bathroom. God is pleased when you rake the lawn. God is pleased when you take time to help your kid with his or her homework. God's pleased when you do grocery shopping. God is pleased with those things and a million other ordinary, everyday responsibilities that make up life. See, the, the world says, no, those are mundane, necessary evil tasks. If you could pawn those off on somebody else, just do that. But God says, no, that's your business. That's your stuff. Those are your things. Do them. That's a life that's pleasing to God. So mind your own affairs. Do your own things. Be an adult. It's pleasing to God. Uh, the third one, the third aspect of the ordinary life is similar. It's that working pleases God. So in verse 11, he says, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. 
Paul says, work with your hands, because of course in those days when he's writing, most labor is physical labor. Not a lot of machines around, certainly no computers, no knowledge jobs like that. Um, so he's just talking about working, just ordinary, everyday work, labor that adds value to society, just work. So aspire to work with your hands. So God is pleased when you work with your hands or with your mind or whatever it is that the job is that you're doing, but God delights in that. God delights in work, not just spiritual work. Like clearly Paul's not talking about spiritual work here. He's just saying work with your hands, your ordinary, everyday labor. God's not just pleased with spiritual labor. He's pleased with physical labor. He's pleased with ordinary, everyday work. Even the work that some people, I think wrongly, consider the lowest form of work as quote-unquote common labor. Right? God is pleased with that. I mean, remember, Jesus was a carpenter, right? I think if he stopped over at your house to watch TV, he'd probably prefer to watch Dirty Jobs to any of those TV preachers. God delights in work. He's pleased with it. And that idea, I've got to say, has been very meaningful to me during my recent career change. So for the last eight years, I've been a pastor full-time, over at Faith Evangelical Free Church in Metamora. Uh, but for the last year, definitely the last year, maybe a little longer, I had a strong sense uh, that that season was coming to a close for me and God was leading me uh, in a new direction. So uh, prior to being a full-time pastor, I had worked as an engineer. Um, I had went to school, studied chemical engineering, gotten a job as a consultant, and I'd, I'd worked in the environmental industry helping uh, different industries make sure they follow EPA regulations so that they don't don't pollute the air or the water or anything like that. Uh, and as I was kind of feeling the sense of leading from God in this transition time, he really opened the door for a job for me to do the same sort of thing that I was doing before. And so I got a job at an ethanol plant in Pekin. So I'm helping to make ethanol in Pekin right now. And I'm working to make sure they don't pollute the Illinois River or pollute the air that we're breathing or, you know, that they handle their waste the right way. Now, it's been interesting as I've, if I've shared this with people and talked about this transition, especially with fellow Christians. Because one response that I've gotten a lot, I, uh, I struggled to categorize it. I, I, I came up with the term um, polite disappointment. Right? So not everybody responds that way, but some people do. Um, that I get the sense that fellow Christians are kind of disappointed. They're, they feel sorry for me, like I've taken a step down. Right? Like I was in the big leagues, but now I'm doing triple A or maybe single A. <coughs> Like something bad must have happened. Okay, wait a minute. You, you used to be a pastor, and now you make ethanol? When exactly did you stop loving Jesus? Okay, well, I didn't. I didn't stop loving Jesus. I still love him as much as ever. But, but I find it fascinating that so many Christians respond this way to my story because I think it reveals something about how we think God thinks about our work. We have this assumption that God has an A team and a B team. The A team that he, actually, maybe even a C team and a D team too. Right? And, and, and God loves what the A team does. And those are the missionaries. People going overseas, risking their lives, smuggling Bibles into foreign countries. Right? They're the elite ones. And then the B team is pretty good too. You got your pastors and, and church planners and other church workers, people in ministry. Like, that's the B team. They're, 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 right, they're doing the Lord's work. God loves that stuff. And then you've got the C team, you know, folks that are in the secular world, but they're still doing good. Social workers, uh, people who work for nonprofits, uh, folks that are counseling, you know, doing, you know, helping people. 
And then the rest of us, the D team, right? Just ordinary, everyday, secular work, making stuff, fixing stuff, selling stuff. I mean, it's what most of us do, but we think God doesn't really care about that. I mean, the best we can do is kind of take the money that we make from doing that stuff and give it to support the other teams. Then God likes that. And that's where this verse has been a great comfort to me. Because it reminds me that God delights in work. In work. Not just spiritual work, but all kinds of work. Even work with our hands. Especially work with our hands. And so for me, it means that, that God is still pleased with me in my new job. He's, he's just as happy with me making ethanol as He was with me being a pastor. He was just as pleased with that spreadsheet I was working on Friday as with the sermon I'm giving right now. And I'll tell you, when I was driving to work on Friday, having meditated on this verse for a couple weeks, I was so excited to go to work. Not because it was Friday and the weekend was coming, but because it was Friday and I was going to work. And I had an opportunity to please my Savior by working hard at the task that He had given me to do. And I hope you feel that way too. I hope you feel it. I hope you see your life matters. Your work matters. God's pleased with this. He's pleased with worship on Sunday, but He's also pleased with work on Monday. That's the kind of life God's looking for. He's looking for this quiet, ordinary life. If you became a Christian, you looked around and you said, what do I do next? Well, this is it. Center your life on Jesus that your life might be well-ordered and quiet and peaceful. Embrace your everyday responsibilities in adulting and get to work. Do the job that God has given you with all your heart. That pleases God. And it produces results. That's what verse 12 is about. An ordinary life produces extraordinary results. So in verse 12, we see it starts with this phrase, so that, which means, okay, if you live that ordinary life, here's the things that happen. So he gives us two results, and they're both extraordinary. So the first one is, so that, um, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So result number one, an ordinary life is a powerful witness to unbelievers. Right, so, so if you're a Christian, if you've received this great gift of, uh, of forgiveness and treasure in Christ and joy in the Holy Spirit, uh, of course, of course you want other people to know that too, right? You, you want other people to know it, but, but sometimes we struggle with that because we feel like, well, I'm not qualified. I don't know how to do that. I'm only on the D team. Maybe I could call in a pastor or a missionary and they could share the gospel with somebody. And so we bench ourselves. We never get around to talking to unbelievers, to sharing with them about the amazing good news of Jesus. But this verse reminds us that you don't have to be a pastor to witness to people. Your ordinariness, the ordinariness of your life doesn't disqualify you from sharing the gospel. In fact, it qualifies you. It makes your witness more effective. This is the very thing Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You know these words, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, hear those words, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. How do we reach the lost? How do we make a, 
How do we impact unbelievers? It's through your life. Your ordinary, everyday life of following Christ, letting your light shine, being salt in the world. People see your good deeds. They see your life. They see Christ in you. And they give glory to the Father for that. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See the pattern? This ordinary life, lived in obedience to Jesus, is in itself a powerful testimony to the world. As people see your life, as they see the quality of your life, as they see Christ in you, they say, I want that. I want that. I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. I don't care how put together people's lives look on the outside. Everybody without Jesus is struggling. They are. They're, mal- they're like my Ford Focus. They are malfunctioning in some way or another. And they're good at covering it up and letting you see only what, uh, what they want you to see. And they're just, they're just dealing with it because they don't know any other way to do it. Until they see you. Being a transparent, vulnerable, Christ-centered life in front of them. They see you just living your ordinary life, fulfilling your responsibilities. Of course, not perfectly. None of us are perfect. But they see this real quality of the Spirit of God in you, of your life being different from theirs. And that is the tension point that opens the door for the gospel. As they say, how, how is your life different from mine? How? how now, are you better at faking it than I am? <laughs> What's going on? And then that door op- opens and you get to use your words then to communicate the good news to them of how God has changed your life. And that's how people get saved. And folks, that is an extraordinary result. How do people get saved? By you living an ordinary life. And God changes their hearts. It's amazing. There's one more result though. It tells us in verse 12, the way I've phrased it is this. It says, an ordinary life enables you to live generously. Now, I've been following pretty closely to the words in the text up to this point, so you might be saying, well, where do you see that? Because the way it ends is he says, uh, and be dependent on no one. Okay, now if we read that out of context, which admittedly we're doing, I'm just dropping in today saying, let's look at two verses. Okay, so if we read that out of context, you might, you might say, well, is he just saying we're supposed, like our goal is to turn into the Marlboro Man? Right, be dependent on nobody. This is the ideal Christian life. Work hard, take care of your stuff, and you don't need anybody. Okay, well, obviously that's not true. In fact, if you just read two verses earlier, uh, you see verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. So absolutely we need one another. Absolutely love for one another is so important. There's a healthy interdependence in the Christian life. We're meant to love one another. The goal is not to be, uh, you know, live off the grid apart from anybody else and be completely self-sufficient. It's a very appealing American idea, but it's not a biblical idea. So what is Paul talking about? Well, if we, if we actually flip over to 2 Thessalonians, just a couple pages over, uh, that fills in the background a little bit of what's going on in this church. So it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. 
This is the follow-up letter where he clarifies some of what, what he was trying to address. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So you get the, the picture there a little bit more. There were these people in the church that just weren't working. They could have worked, but they weren't. They were living in idleness, living off of the generosity of other people. And that's not right. right? The Christian life is not one of sponging off of the generosity of other people. It's one where you work hard so that you can take care of yourself and so that you can give to others. Ephesians 4.28 another place where Paul fleshes this out. Ephesians 4.28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So if any of you are thieves here today, this is a really good instruction for you. Stop it. But don't just stop stealing. Work. And, and why work? Well, it's assumed that, that part of that is work so that you can take care of yourself and stop stealing. But that's not what he says. He says, so that they may have something to share with anyone in need. That is, the point of the Christian life is not simply to have enough for yourself, but to have more than enough that you might be able to give. So we put that all back together with 1 Thessalonians 4.12. And when he says that the goal is to be dependent on no one, what he's saying is, don't be that sponge. Don't be the one who relies upon the generosity of others, but work hard, live the ordinary Christian life, so that you may have enough to take care of yourselves and... To bless others. This is one of the great results of the ordinary Christian life is that it enables extraordinary generosity. Now, I know you guys want to be generous. I know you do. We all do. We want to, we want to help more people. We want to give more to help people. We want to give our time to help them. But, but, but what happens? We say, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. We have to say no to these opportunities to be generous because we don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. Let me tell you something. If you devote yourself to the ordinary Christian life, if you aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, you will find that you have far more time and money than you ever dreamed. And you have capacity to be generous in ways that you always wanted to be, but never could. It's not a secret. I'm not some charlatan telling you some, some new stuff here. This is... This is, this is Common knowledge. This is the book of Proverbs, really. This is what I'm telling you. But if you prioritize the quiet life over the noisy life, right? Like you, you get your life together. You start saying no to things that are uh, keeping you too busy. You, you, you declutter your life from activities and, and obligations that aren't in line with God's calling in your life. Yeah, you'll find that you do have time to be generous with other people. 
Right? If you take your responsibilities seriously and you even may take some time to think through what are the things I have to get done, when do I have to get done, make a schedule, uh, you, know, you know, if you need to-do lists or something like that, like find something that works for you so that you, can, you, you know what obligations you have, you can do them on time, and then, you know what, you'll find you have more time to do other things. And if you're faithful in the boring, mundane things of maintenance, right, and taking care of your responsibilities, you're going to have more money because which is cheaper, to change the oil in your car regularly or to get a completely new engine because you forgot to do it? Right? Emergencies and unplanned chaotic life is expensive. And if you work hard with joy for the Lord, your employers are going to notice that and you're going to be rewarded like Joseph or Daniel. And you'll be given more responsibility and probably more money. Why? So you can have nicer houses or better vacations? No, so that you can bless more people. See, over time, this sort of stuff adds up. If you live an ordinary Christian life, it moves you from being a person who needs the generosity of others to get by to be the sort of person who can be radically generous, far more generous than you ever dreamed you could be. Now, in saying that, I recognize it's, it's sort of like... Um, talking to people about the miracle of compound interest. And if you just save a little bit now, then little no, and you do it regularly, you'll have a bunch of money at the end. But nobody does it because it's boring. Okay, the ordinary Christian life may seem boring, but folks, it's extraordinary. It works. It pleases God. It's a powerful witness to unbelievers, and it enables you to live the sort of generous life that you've always wanted to live. And so I encourage you today to make this your aspiration. Take God at his word when he says, aspire to this. Don't believe the world's lies when they say, no, aspire to success. Aspire to a standard of beauty that you can never attain. Aspire to be famous. No. Aspire to live quietly. To mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. That is a good life that is pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, help us to get excited about this sort of life. Help us to be excited to keep following hard after you to live this sort of life. And Lord, we pray for these results. We want people to be saved. We want to make a difference in this world. We want to be able to help other people, Lord. And sometimes we feel like we just can't do it because we're, we're that noisy engine. We're out of control. So Jesus, come to us now. Give us peace. Give us uh, your healing. Deliver us from the anxieties from the stresses, from the disorder in our life that we might be able to live an ordinary life that produces, by your grace, an extraordinary result. In Jesus' name, amen.